In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. And amen. You can take your seats. Good morning, everybody. It is wonderful to see you. My name is Ross. I'm the congregation pastor at the West Congregation. It's always my joy and immense privilege, and I mean that. It's a privilege to be able to share the word of God with you. I have very little in and of myself that would be worthy of your times this morning, but I am confident in the truth of the scriptures, and so it's my joy to be able to share them with you. John 11 is where we're going to be, and that's not going to make a whole lot of sense because we're actually jumping back in this week to our verse-by-verse study of Matthew. But in order to do that, we need to set the scene today in John's gospel. We spent months in the teachings of Jesus as contained in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5 to 7. And where we jump back in over these next few weeks into Matthew, the action shifts a bit in the way that Matthew the scribe is recording the narrative and it goes into a frenetic season in Jesus' life of both teaching and the public working of miracles. We are told that Jesus teaches as one who has authority and he backs up that authority. We're gonna see it, it's amazing, by showing us that he has authority over nature and the physical realm. He can bust into it, he can overrule it, he made it, and so therefore he can work within it and change the rules of nature by the power of the Holy Spirit as he sees fit for the glory of his Father. Here's a summary statement from the end of Matthew 9 that summarizes Matthew 8 and 9. So it summarizes the next few weeks um, that we're gonna spend together. So it's spoiler alert, right? This is what the next few weeks are gonna look like. It's not an excuse to not come to church. Uh, Hopefully it just whets the appetite. Um, so that you guys uh, will continue to join us. Here's what it says, Matthew 9, 35. It says, Jesus continued going around to all the towns and villages. He's traveling, he's busy. What's he doing? He's teaching in their synagogues. And so some of those same principles that we've studied in the Sermon on the Mount, he now takes on the road and he's teaching that to people as he goes and he's preaching the good news of the kingdom of God and healing every disease and every sickness. Now I know that makes some of you super excited and that makes some of you super anxious. Uh, We might be all over the map in here today when it comes to miracles and healings and demons and all of this good stuff that we're gonna see over the next couple of chapters and how it is and perhaps even, to be honest, if it is that they manifest today. You see, I grew up in a church tradition that said that this stuff probably didn't happen anymore today. Healings and those sorts of things. It wasn't our place to ask for those because those kind of died in the apostolic age. Uh, Even if we didn't explicitly state that, we functioned in our church life and in our personal life as believers as if that was the case. And I think that's gonna be the case for many of you. You might say, no, I don't really believe that. But if we just did an audit of our Christian lives and experience, we would say like, yeah, that's, that's pretty much the way I live. Um, I'm not expecting God to bust into the natural order. And tragically, many Christians today have therefore given into an open theism that says God set this thing in, in kind of motion and now he's kind of hands off. 
and he wishes he could bust in and change it, but he can't, and one day everything will be okay. But at the moment, the world just runs according to the laws of nature and according to the observable laws of science, and there's nothing much we can do about that. The problem with that is the Bible. And it creates an immense tension within us as Christians as we read this stuff, and then we go, mm, it doesn't feel like my lived experience. But I get why we would get there, friends. I do, I'm empathetic to it. Um, because a lot of the stuff, we've gotta be honest, a lot of the stuff passed off as the miraculous today is embarrassingly fake and manipulated and cheap and nasty and not pleasant. And also, a lot of our lived experience doesn't reveal it to be true. I acknowledge that tension. And so I grew up persuaded that God doesn't work in the same way today as he did then, which is a heresy of sorts, which I now see. And that today, because he speaks so powerfully and perfectly through his word, which is true, I thought that then he no longer spoke through the sort of signs and wonders we saw in scripture and the early church and the manifestation of spiritual gifts and all those sorts of things. I knew he definitely wasn't speaking through the types of claimed signs and wonders that televangelists so wickedly monetized, right? I'm sure about that one. That is still true. There's a rule actually that helpful for us um, in the lives of the apostles. If they want money in exchange for it, it's not of God, don't buy it. Right, Simon the sorcerer tried to do this and Peter had a pretty stern warning for him about that. He was like, that's not how this thing works. You don't get the power of Holy Spirit in exchange for money so that you can then go monetize it and build a career off of it. That's not how it works. But I had a, a tension then with this as well in my lived experience. I wasn't settled. I wasn't like, okay, brilliant. God doesn't work like that anymore. My experience of Christianity seemed nothing like the experiences of those in scriptures, right? And so as I would have preachers telling me all the reasons God can't do this, I would just thumb through the New Testament and just go like, well, he kind of he did, like all the time, like on every page, you can't get far. And it's like, yep, miraculous. Next one, yeah, there again, right? And some of these stories are, are, are strange and, and amazing. And there is a fairly convoluted argument. I wanna tell you it's an argument, but it is convoluted, seeking to show that God has ceased to do these things at a point from a verse in the scriptures. There was nothing to me that logically suggested from the Bible that God said he was done working in this way. And, there were people that I loved and trusted. I met some charismatics. It was the most annoying thing in the world because they read their Bibles a lot more than me and they were filled with the fruit of the Spirit. They had this thing called um, joy, um, which I, I had not yet encountered in the Christian church. And, and that was seriously annoying and troubling for me. And they read the Bible and they had counter arguments to say, no, God still does work this way. And so I was very confused. And then God healed my dad out of the blue, spared his life when everyone, including me, thought he had zero chance at survival. I was in Johannesburg, it was 2001, just a few days before September 11, and we got a call to say, your dad has had some kind of neurological event at an airport in Sydney, and he's been rushed to hospital, and if you and your brothers wanna see him again, best get you in the next 48 hours, because we've resussed him, we've ventilated him, but he won't last. And so we jumped on a plane and I walked into the room just as they'd, they'd done resuscitating him again and they were like, guys, the news is bad. There's very little chance of survival. 
And if he survives, he'll be severely dependent upon care for the rest of his life. He'll never function as an adult again. And my life just came crashing down. But people around the world started to pray. And my mom, my mom said, I think God's gonna heal him. Now before you do this, because I can see it in your eyes already, you're going, oh sweet, his little mom in Africa who didn't have a sophisticated scientific worldview thought that God could heal him, that's so kind. Um, my mom taught at a medical school for most of her adult life um, and is a professor emeritus and is a big fan of science and rational thinking, but is a reader of and believer in the God of the scriptures and went like, I think he's going to do this. I didn't. If it was up to my faith, God wouldn't have healed my dad. And he did. Not only spared his life, but he's still alive today. He's still functioning great. My, my dad, we didn't deserve it. I don't know why God did it, but he did. As people rallied and play, prayed around the world and said, please heal him, he did. And so I was suddenly a very unwilling charismatic. <laughs> I, I even prayed in tongues by mistake once. Um, <laughs> genuine accident. Um, but I had no theology really to hold that up. And so I had to study and search to come to peace with this over time. Because friends, listen, let me tell you this news. We have a miraculous faith based on miraculous claims. You pull them out and the whole thing falls down. To be a Christian is to believe in the miraculous. I mean, our faith is centered on the immaculate conception, the sinless existence, the substitutionary death and bodily resurrection of a Galilean peasant named Jesus. And that's before we get to any of the claims of the laws of nature overriding things that he did. And the scriptures show us that those claims are inseparable from his teachings because they are historic claims that they make. Jesus went teaching about the kingdom and healing every disease. You don't get to pull those two things apart. He walked on water. I believe he legit did. I don't think he just got like good momentum and it was like a camera angle. He walked on water. He fed 5,000 people off of a happy meal. He cast out demons. He sent them into the sea and he taught love your neighbor as yourself. Those things go together. And so even our most base and central Christian claims are frankly ridiculous. With a purely humanistic or naturalistic worldview, if you have any sort of sense that rules out the miraculous, <laughs> then a lot of our truth claims from the scriptures actually end up fall down, falling down. And so today, I wanna set us up for the next few weeks where the healings in the text are gonna come thick and fast. Next week, Sunday, you're gonna hear just three in a row, dish, 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 different ones, and Jesus just speaks and people are healed. I wanted to ask some questions first to prepare our hearts and our minds of Jesus' healing ministry while he was here on earth and say, can we learn something about the nature of God from the way that Jesus healed the sick? And then to be honest, just to reveal my intentions to you, we want us as a church to ask him to do it again in our day and age, to heal, to free, to invade our space, to surprise us with the power of the Holy Spirit, to send the same power that raised him from the dead and is given freely to the church today, to send it again in abundance. We wanna see that. We want to and are committed to teaching the truths of the kingdom and we want to experience the power 
of that same kingdom. But in order to get there, I feel like we need a base from which we can understand the miraculous accounts that are gonna come at us over the next few weeks. And so the question I wanted to ask today as I walk through John 11 are these. And these are based, just by the way, I love giving credit where it is due. This I stole from a theologian who helped me piece my world back together when I became an unwilling charismatic, right? His name's Andrew Wilson. Google him. I like him a lot. He helped me to understand that, oh, you can be a person of the book and a person who experiences the miraculous at the same time. In fact, perhaps to be a proper person of the book, you get the rest, all right? Uh, his four questions uh, around this text and the ones I wanna to use today was, why does Jesus heal? And, and I've used the term Jesus because it's the incarnated Christ that does the healing here by the power of the Holy Spirit. Of course, God's healing and miraculous power is way more Trinitarian than this, okay? But I don't have time today, and so I don't know why I wasted a full minute just giving you that footnote, but just in case uh, you were gonna critique it later on, all right? Trinitarian God, incarnated Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit through the will of the Father, healing people, got it? <laughs> Praise the Lord. Why does Jesus heal? When does Jesus heal? I think maybe the most important question today. Thirdly, what can we learn about Jesus' nature from his healings? And lastly, how does Jesus heal? Uh, I wanna walk through one of his most famous healing accounts, and it isn't actually contained in Matthew. And so John 11 is where we will be. We're just gonna go through the text. This isn't a systematic theology of healing. There'd be much more we could say. I just wanna give us one example and say, it's like that. Uh, he does it like that. You ready? Verse one, John 11. Now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha, these wonderful sisters that feature quite prominently in the life and ministry of Jesus. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother, Lazarus, was ill. And so the sisters sent to him, that's Jesus saying, Lord, he whom you love, don't you love that? He whom you love is ill. But when Jesus heard it, he said, the illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So, this is one of the strangest little conjunctions in all of the scripture. He loved them. So, when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Go down to verse 11. After saying these things, he's, he's had a bit of back and forth with some of the disciples. He said to them, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. The disciples said to him, Lord, if he has fallen asleep, he will recover. I love the disciples, they're like, do we really need to travel today? I mean, he's just having a nap, he's gonna be, he's gonna be fine. <laughs> now, Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought that he meant taking rest in sleep. I love how, how John is like, just in case the readers don't get it as well. <laughs> his experience of the followers of Jesus, although they weren't particularly bright, so it's like, and for everyone who reads this forevermore, just so you, you understand. Then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died. And for your sake, I am glad that I was not there. Oh, so that you may believe. But let us go to him. First question, 
Why does Jesus heal? A few reasons that we can see here just in the first few uh, verses of this story. The first one is, and it's the big one, and this is a big theme of scripture. You need to have this theme in your mind when you try to understand God and his workings in the world. The, the, The first reason Jesus heals is for the glory of God. Jesus says that this is all taking place for the glory of the Father and so that the Son might be glorified through it. He says that in verse four. God loves, friends, listen, God loves to do things that only he can do so that the logical response when he does it is praise and worship of himself. Now, the glory of God is a massive theme in scripture and you might go like, does that mean God is self-centered? Yes, but completely not in the way you think. Because he's, he, he's determined that he will receive glory because that's the most loving thing that he can do for people because as he receives glory, people who didn't know him will come to know him and they will realize that their lives not about them but about him and that's a fantastic gift that he gives to them. And so it's not like us seeking glory, which is totally self-centered and about our own worth uh, in a wicked way. This is in a godly way where he says, oh, I don't want you to be crushed by the purpose of living for your own glory, live for mine. And so he's continually painting across the universe and interjecting and sending and moving and saving. Why? So that people will know him and love him and experience the life of the kingdom. This is an incredible thing. This gives us confidence, listen, in coming to God for healing today. Why? He's the same. He loves to show us his power and mercy so that he might be glorified. He isn't an unwilling God needing to be coerced. We're like, God, just just show us your glory. He's like, oh, sure, sure. I love to do that. That's the whole purpose of the universe. And so when we're praying and asking that, we're praying in alignment with what he created us for. It also takes the pressure off of us when we ask him. I used to feel a lot of pressure when someone come and say, hey, I'm sick, will you pray for me? I'd be like, all right, let's go. (laughs) Gotta get juiced up first, gotta make sure I'm holy. Because man, this is a big moment. It is a big moment, but not for me. (laughs) For the glory of God, he's saying the fact that I would even let A weak sinner like you lay hands on one of my precious children so that they may be healed shows it's about my glory and not about you. It takes so much pressure off of us because it ultimately isn't about us. And so listen, we don't need to manufacture outcomes. And I see this a lot. Like, oh no, I think they're healed. I'm like, they're still lying down. (laughs) And haven't moved for some time. It's okay. It's okay. God's pursuing his glory. And and so uh, we don't need to manufacture these outcomes. We can ask God, hey, Lord, won't you make your name great in our day and age? And we can trust him with whatever he does to accomplish that. Second reason, why does Jesus heal? Because he loves people. Oh, don't miss this. When we can get big on the glory of God, we can forget like, and he also loves us. Verse three says that Lazarus is called he whom you love. And verse five goes out of its way to remind us that Jesus loves Mary and Martha and Lazarus. He loves these people. Now, interestingly, it is Jesus' love for them that seems to be the reason for him to delay in going to see them. Uh, I love that, that verse. It says, he loved them, so he stayed, and Lazarus died. Selah, right? This is not 
instruction on pastoral leadership or friendship, right? I'm just being like, Jesus, I love you so much, I'm not coming to visit you. Um, I would love if that was a teaching point from the text, um, but it's not. What was he doing? He loved them, and so he wanted to reveal the glory of God to them in a way more powerful way than if he had went and just took a sick man and made him better. He was gonna take a dead man and make him alive, and because he loved them, he wanted them to have the opportunity to see that miracle. And because he loves us, he wants to give us the opportunity to see him at work today. Our friends, listen, what confidence it brings us when we remember the simple truth that Jesus loves us. He isn't messing with you when he makes you wait. He is motivated by love for his friends, which is what we are when we are believers. Isn't that insane? You are my friends. Jesus says, if you obey what I have commanded you. He loves us. And so sometimes he heals in this life just because he loves us. And sometimes he tarries and waits. Why? He loves us. Third thing, why does Jesus heal? To build faith, to build faith. Verse 15 says, so that you may believe. Now listen. Before we get all hyped up on faith and take it to an illogical conclusion, Jesus also says elsewhere that it's a wicked generation that seeks continually for a sign, right? And so if your faith is based on that exclusively, Jesus has some warnings for you. But here he also shows that he loves to build faith in his people by showing off his power. Friends, I've seen this today. For believers and for unbelievers, when God pitches up, does the miraculous, people are like, hey, I need to reevaluate my life, right? The miraculous is a powerful apologetic. It was in my life. When my dad got sick, I was wandering, straying deep off the path. God healed him. I was like, hey, yo, all right, I, I'm, I'm paying attention. You got my attention, right? I'm, I'm right here. Why? It built faith in an amazing way. It rouses sleepy Christians. And friends, listen, I think, I'm not a sociologist, but I think one of the most powerful apologetics we will have in our generation, I say our generation as if I fit um, uh, with you folk, um, uh, in, in the generation of today, of which I'm determined to cling on to, Um, I think one of the most powerful apologetics we will have is miraculous power and personal holiness, and I think those two are related. In the 80s and 90s, you know what we wanted? Smart arguments for the rational mind. So actually, if you think about it, that's self-defeating, right? And those arguments were excellent. I studied apologetics, I loved them, and they're still helpful in some cases. Most people in this generation are open to some kind of supernatural ideation, at least, and so the miraculous power of God and a people who live peculiarly in a secular culture, there's your apologetic. Ding, 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 ding. And so God, move, do stuff that surprises my unsaved friends, do stuff that, that awakens a sleepy church. Please, God, build faith in your people. Okay, why does God heal? For the glory of God to display his love, to, to, to build faith, and we're told elsewhere to prove the divinity of Jesus Christ. I love Acts 2.22. Peter says that Jesus was attested to God through his power to perform miracles, including healings, all right? And so as Jesus goes around healings, he's saying, I am him, I'm the Messiah. I'm the one you've been waiting for. All right, uh, let's move on to the next question. Let's go to verse 17. Now, now when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. 
Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off, and many of the Jews had come to, Mary, uh, to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him, but Mary remained seated in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now, I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, I love this moment, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, she's a good theologian. She's like, yeah, I mean, I get it. I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. And then Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, yes, Lord. I believe that you are the Christ, the son of God, who is coming into the world. Big question. When does Jesus I love this exchange between Martha and Jesus. It's magical. It teaches us so much about discipleship, about the nature of Christ, about the heart of the Father. It gives us an insight on what the Christian's view, listen, this is big, on what the Christian's view should be on God's answer to prayers of healing, to requests that God would do the miraculous. Now, I have heard it said and I think for the most part it is correct. In fact, I think I've taught this and I, and I stand by it. I think for most prayers this is right. That when we pray, God has three options, right? He's got infinite options because he's God. But in our own limited understanding, there's three things God could say. He could say yes, no, or wait, right? You've heard that? And that's been helpful for me in my prayer life. Yes, no, or wait. But as Jesus and Martha discuss the healing of Lazarus, there's actually only two available options when it comes to healing in the life of the healing, of the believer, now or later. Listen, there is no no. When I first realized this, my mind was blown. When the believer asks God for healing, the believer, God doesn't say no. He always says no. Yes, always. It is just a matter of timing. Will he do it now? Or will he do it at the resurrection? Ultimately, God heals everybody. Now, friends, listen, that's not crazy Pentecostalism before you get super upset um, and email any elder that you can find on the site. Um, there's a few of them. You can send lots of mails. What this is, is creedal Christian orthodoxy. Why? We are told as part of the creeds, our bodies will be raised incorruptible, no longer subject to the fall and the curse. That means no sickness. We all believe in ultimate healing. We all believe it is coming. There'll be no more sickness, no more suffering, no more death in the new heavens and the new earth, and new earth totally healed All of us, it's an astonishing thing to consider. And so wait, this is fantastic. Our posture, when we are asking God to heal a believer, isn't that we are desperately trying to say the right incantation to get him to be willing. We aren't twisting his arm as if we're going, oh, oh, please, oh, please, oh, please. I mean, I'll be good. What if I read uh, from my Bible plan six days in a row? Let's not be crazy, five days in a row. 
Right, what, what if I do that? What if I, I, if I fast Instagram for like a week? Then will you do these things? That's not, what, that's not the posture. We're simply his kids saying, hey, dad, could you do it now? I know you're gonna do it then, but could you do it now? This brings such freedom, a freedom in which we can be faithful, full of faith in the asking, and if necessary, in the waiting, if that's what he asks us to do. I know, listen, friends, I know some of you are waiting. I know the tension of that. I have prayed for dozens of people who were never healed. (laughs) I've done lots of memorial services of people who I wished God would have made better in this life, and he said, wait. I have stood next to families in maternity wards where there is no crying of an infant, but there is the sobs of mourning parents. I know. And so, if you want to know if I'm empathetic to those who are receiving God's not now in this life, I am. But listen, your hope isn't anchored in my empathy and understanding. Your hope is anchored in Christ's empathy and understanding. And when you are sure of that, if you have faith in his ultimate yes at the last day, then you are free to ask and you are free to faithfully accept his timing, knowing that he will heal. Doesn't this change our posture of prayers of healing? Maybe it's just me. (laughs) But this has radically changed my posture instead of being like, okay, guys, we've got to get right ready here, all right? Please, God, please. I mean, and, and this is how we pray in reform circles. Look, I know you're probably not going to. But if you do, huh, we would be fine with that. <laughs> and then here's how I see a manipulation of an over-realized eschatology in another tradition that says, oh no, when you pray to God, you just tell him. You, you just tell him. And then you just claim your healing. I'm like, mm. I'm, mm. <laughs> You know what I do see? Faithful people saying, I know, I know on the last day. I know I'm certain of it. And I'll wait if necessary. But can you do it now? Can you do it now? What a wonderful posture. Right, down to verse 28. Going on to our third question. What can we learn about Jesus' nature from his healings? I'm going to go quick. When she said this, she went and called her sister Mary, saying in private, the teacher is here and is calling for you. And when she heard it, she rose quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. And when the Jews who were with her in the house, consoling her, saw Mary rise quickly and go out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. Let's just say the Middle Eastern tradition of mourning and funerals is very different from ours and perhaps more helpful. There's lots of weeping, lots of wailing, lots of running to different spots, lots of sitting around, some more weeping, some more wailing. People just let it hang out when they're mourning, okay? Now when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. And so the Jews said, see how he loved him? But some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? What can we learn about Jesus' nature from his healing of Lazarus in particular? Firstly, this is big. He is the resurrection and the life. 
Jesus is the resurrection and the life. So listen, there's a knock on, there's an implication from this. Healing is what he does because life and resurrection is what he is. He is the resurrection and the life. He doesn't just do it, he is it. Now stop, there's one more implication and this is where it starts, right? This is astonishing if we actually believe this for a second. When we are saved, we are described as in him, which means we are in the resurrection and in life and so we ought to see evidences of the reversal of the curse in our lives because we are hidden in the life of the resurrection. All right, I'll move on, that one's a bit too complex. Next one. (laughs) He hates death. This is big, you need a little bit of contextual work here. He's not just the resurrection and the life, he hates death. This phrase is amazing. It says he was deeply moved in spirit and greatly troubled. I always thought that this was Jesus becoming overwhelmed with sadness and gentle empathy and and that uh, the weeping that follows is, is just a result of that. But it's anything but gentle and defeated. You know that the language here, the original language here is to be so enraged that you snort and huff in anger. Have you ever done that? You're so furious, you just resort to snorting, right? You just can't believe it. That's Jesus in the face of death. The the examples we have of this word from from the ancient linguistic settings is what a war horse does as it's lined up against an army of opposition war horses and as it's treading the soil ready to go into war, it snorts with a kind of determination and furious anger that says, I hate this thing in front of me, let's go get it. Jesus stands at Lazarus' tomb and says, I hate death, let's go get it. Let's go get it. He faces it head on and beats it. Isn't it remarkable? Our king. Doesn't that give us courage to pray when we know he feels that way? He hates the curse of sin. Loves to break it. Loves to. Thirdly, he weeps at loss and suffering. He's not just some kind of now alpha male war horse, right? He also looks around at the sadness and weeps in empathy because he is our sympathetic high priest. It always amazed me that Jesus wept at the grave of Lazarus. I think theologians today, the people we look to to be models of Jesus would have gone, now friends, no more weeping. Lazarus shall be raised. But Jesus loves people. And so he weeps with those who are weeping. Again, that comforts my heart massively. And so the fourth one again is he loves people. I wanted to double emphasize that point today. See how he loved him. Love drives and motivates Jesus at every step. Okay, let's land this plan. Verse 38. Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. Does that change your picture of how he approaches the tomb? <laughs> like I don't know how this is going to go a war horse stepping up going I know how this is going to go let's go beat death it was a cave and a stone lay against it and Jesus said take away the stone he would go on to say that later on from inside of a similar such setting 
take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, was like, ah. Lord, by this time there will be an odor. I love the, the King James Version, because it said, for Lazarus stinketh. <laughs> um, <laughs> true story. Um, for he has been dead four days. I just, I do think as well, that is a great name for a band, and if any of you want to take that, Lazarus stinketh, I think. Um, <laughs> just putting it out there. Jesus said to her, did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone. And Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that, I, I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips. Imagine being there. And his face wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. How does Jesus heal? Just as we close this today. Firstly, in response to belief. What does he say in verse 40? If you believed, I would show you the glory of God. My friends, I've already said, I don't think we have to go claim our miracles as if we somehow coerce God through just our repeat speech and incantation. I don't think that's it. But I've been spending a lot of time in Jesus' miracles over the last little while in prep for this series. And I will tell you this, Jesus was deeply moved by faith when he saw it, listen, and he was deeply troubled by a lack of faith when he didn't see it. When he sees faith, he's moved by it. When he sees lack of faith, he's troubled by it. Cynicism is not a gift of the Holy Spirit. I've read the list in every language. It's not there. And yet so many of us, in some kind of posture of Christian godliness, go like, I'm just cynical by nature. You were right when you said the sin part, um, but the, the word could have ended a, a different way, right? We believe in the supernatural. It doesn't mean we believe every cheap trick, but we believe that God can and does do these things. God loves faith. Our faith doesn't move the hand of God, friends, but we must have faith that the hand of God can and will move. How can I say that our faith doesn't move the hand of God? Well, the Lazarus example is actually a great one. Lazarus, so far as we can tell, doesn't have any faith in this moment. He's um, dead. But Jesus wants those around to believe so that they would see the glory of God. All right, secondly, how does Jesus heal? So it's in response to belief. Secondly, through prayer. He had been praying before arriving at the tomb and then he thanks the Father that he's already heard his prayers. Friends, today, listen, we are told to pray for the sick and to lay hands on them, what does the scripture say? That they may get well. Prayer is our mode of asking. It's our way of coming to the Father and saying, would you do it today? Third way he heals is with the speaking of a word. Jesus speaks and a dead man obeys. He's just lying there dead. I don't know where his soul's at. That's a sermon for another day, right? Like, but he's just lying there. What's that experience like for Lazarus? I don't know. But Jesus is like, Lazarus, he's like, I'm up, all right? I'm, I'm up. What's going on? Um, it's dark in here. It's weird. It smells terrible. Um, and, and, and off he goes. 
We are told, again today, that we need to claim blessing and healing, that we have to speak it over our lives. I don't see that anywhere in the scriptures. You know what we need? We need him to speak, because he speaks, and, and the stars come into being. He speaks, and the dead are raised. He speaks, and the lost are saved. He speaks, and demons are like, you got it, I'm out of here, I'm going to live in those pigs. He speaks, and, and the universe obeys. It's astonishing. What do we do? We believe, and we ask him to speak, and to speak again. It's not too hard for him. God doesn't have to go like, okay, I can see that. That's a tough one. Oof, cancer? Guys, that one's complicated. He speaks, and it's done. Astonishing. Lastly, how does he heal? With dignity and with care for the person. I know this seems like making a lot out of a seemingly innocuous phrase, but it's striking to me that Jesus is the one <laughs> that goes, um, maybe unbind him from those nasty clothes, right? Everyone else is standing around. Lazarus is like, mmm, 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 right? He's like, he's stuck in these clothes, his head's wrapped up. And Jesus is like, uh, unbind him. Uh, like, please do that. And he actually does this a lot in other healings. Uh, when he cleanses a leper, what does he say? Go show yourself to the priest. What's he doing? He's restoring his place in the covenantal community. He's saying, I don't just care about your healing. I care about you. Go be restored. He raises a little girl and he goes like, hey, give her something to eat. She's been dead for a while. That makes you starving, right? That's, give her something to eat. She's probably hungry. He cares for us, all of us, our whole body, our whole life, our whole existence. He gives us dignity and care in the way that he heals. And he'll do it on that day. And we get to just say, and, and how about today? And how about today? So here's what I think we should do today. I'm a, I'm a f- pretty simple guy when it comes to practical applications of the scriptures. I think we should just respond in faith. We should be faithful and faithful. We should be both of those things. In our tradition, we focus on faithful. Be faithful in the waiting, yes, and be faithful in the asking. Now, I'm gonna pray for us here in a second. And then in your different congregations, there's gonna be different ways for you, um, uh, either today or in the days and weeks ahead, for you to have gatherings and, and moments where you can come and ask for prayer if you need a prayer of healing. We would just love today, if we would just be a people that just lift the temperature of faith in this place. And if we would just be a people who would ask we would declare his willingness to heal and his power to do so. And we would just humbly ask him as his blood-bought children, will you do it today, Lord? Will you do it today? Father God, thank you so much for your word. I pray I pray that you would give us more faith. Lord, we believe Help our unbelief. I pray that we would not be a people trying to follow some ancient set of teachings, but not really believing in the ongoing power of the kingdom. I pray that we would be a people who believe that. Lord, you've already done the miraculous in our midst. We've got sinners in here whose names are in the Lamb's Book of Life. What a thing. but we long to see your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. We know that one day. I am certain one day 
I will stand before you, resurrection body. I will look around at people I've prayed for who had experienced um, disability and pain and sickness and illness healed from it. Oh my goodness, what a day. What a day. Help us to be faithful while we wait for that day. And help us to be people who are full of faith, who ask you if maybe you can do it today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. And so friends here downtown, what we're going to do here is...